I've had a, a number of people come up to me and, and say, man, we're, s- we're so sad that you're leaving, Ryan, but are you going to finish this series? Um, it's like, wow, well, don't, you know, let the tears dry. And um, yes, I am. Um, so today uh, we're going to jump into the subject of science and the scriptures. And then next week, yes, on Father's Day, I'm going to be teaching on the issue of sexuality and Brave in the New World and how that all ties together. So you're welcome. Um, I promised on Mother's Day where I taught a message on evil and suffering on Mother's Day that I would be equally as offensive on Father's Day. Praise be to God, it's all worked out. I want to start with a question. Who would win if the Colorado Rockies played the Denver Broncos? I mean, the question you should ask is, what are they playing? What are they playing, right? Um, because before I put any money on either team, I want to know what we're playing. Because while they're all athletes and they're all talented in their own right, they have different specialties, don't they? They have different bents. They have different things that they practice day after day, night after night. They have different things that they're professionals at. I think a lot of times we ask the question, are you a person of faith or are you a person of science? Who wins, the Rockies or the Broncos? And we, the Rockies, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think what we, we build this false dichotomy that you have to decide whether or not you're a Bible person, which means then that you have to ignore all good science, or whether you're a science person, and in our mind, that means that we have to ignore the Bible. And what I'd like to do today is propose to you that maybe there's a third way, that maybe Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion, was wrong when he argued that you cannot be an intellectual, scientific thinker and hold on to religious beliefs. He's wrong. And I think the scriptures actually invite us into that tension. Would you Open with me to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to start our time there this morning. Matthew chapter 2. This is a, uh, a famous story in the scriptures, and it's a story that we'll often read around Christmas time. But it's a story that demonstrates this convergence of scripture and science. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, verse 1, of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Wise men, or magi, from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we, will you say this with me, church? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. The journey journey was long, roughly 800 miles We don't know exactly where the Magi were from. Most people think, based on the gifts that they brought to the Messiah, that they were from either Babylon or Persia, but definitely from that region, about 800 miles, and they're walking into the fog. They're walking with this question that's just spinning in the back of their heads and stirring their feet to put one foot in front of the other month after month, and the question is simply this, could the stars be telling a story? Could the stars be telling a story? I mean, 
following a star. It sounds a little bit like hocus pocus, doesn't it? But it was probably the best science they had back in the first century. Uh, these magi were sort of part of a priestly sect, but their role was to anoint kings. And in order to do that, they were studiers of the stars. Ancient astronomers, not with our modern day technology and telescopes, but they absolutely loved to study the skies. And not much has changed, has it? I mean, when we receive a picture back from the Hubble telescope of one of the hundred billion observable galaxies, we stand in awe, don't we? Aaron wrote a liturgical piece on the picture, first ever picture of the black hole. And when that was released a few weeks ago, it almost broke the internet. I mean, we were like, right? And these magi were were people who were, were stargazers. They were, they were scientists. They were wrestling with the nature of the world that we live in. Um, people have done um, a number of different things to try to identify what this star actually was. Um, some people have suggested that maybe it was a comet. Uh, the scientists haven't been able to locate any comets around that time in that region. Um, others have said that it was a planetary conjunction, specifically Saturn and Jupiter in the Pisces constellation coming together in a way that everybody in the ancient world at that time would have said is a declaration that a new ruler is being born onto the scene. Coincidentally, there was such a constellation arrangement in 7 B.C. Others still would argue oh, it was probably some form of a nova, some um, uh, residue from an exploding star. And Chinese scientists have identified that there was such a star in that region uh, five, between 5 and 4 BC. Now, this is not a message on the exact nature of the star that the Magi may have followed. It's simply a way to say, could it be a false dichotomy that we have to choose between science or faith? Uh, between being people who wrestle with and study the world that we live in and who trust in God? I mean, after all, if we really read this text, here's what we find. These ancient stargazers followed the star, but it didn't get them all the way to the Messiah. They had to go into Jerusalem, which, by the way, is 5.5 miles away from Bethlehem. They had to find the scribes, and they had to find the prophets, and they had to ask them, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? When Herod heard this, verse 3, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. Assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Herod's starting to ask the same question that the Magi asked earlier. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it's written by the prophet Micah. 
And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for you, from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's what they told the Magi when they came and asked them. See, science got them close, but it didn't get them to the feet of Jesus. Maybe the saddest part of this whole story is that the scribes and the prophets never said to the stargazers, what do you know that maybe we've missed? What are you up to? Because the magi arrive at the feet of Jesus. You may know the end of the story, but the scribes and the prophets never do. At least that we know of. See, I think what, what Matthew's telling us is that science and scripture aren't in opposition. They're actually in harmony. They're designed to work together. As the developer of the scientific method, Sir Francis Bacon, wrote, he said, God has in fact written two books, not just one. Of course, we're all familiar with the first book he wrote, namely Scripture, but he has written a second book, and it's called what? Creation. It's called creation. See, modern science actually got its beginning where people were wrestling with, Christians were wrestling with studying the natural world to, quote, understand God's thoughts after him. That was the beginning of this entire discipline. Yeah, science or scripture, faith or Bible. I'm here to make what to some of you will be a very welcomed assertion. You do not have to choose one or the other. I love the way that these magi were people who studied the stars and then were driven to try to discover. They were, they were curious people. It led them on a journey. I love the way that Frank Turek said it. He says this. He said, to say that a scientist can disprove the existence of God is like saying a mechanic can disprove the existence of Henry Ford. That they were unafraid, the Magi were, they were unafraid of what they would find. They just wanted to follow the evidence and see where it might lead. I think if we're going to be brave in the new world as followers of Jesus, we have to allow mystery to drive discovery. Followers of Jesus cannot be afraid of what they will find in the scientific realm and scientific discoveries. So many followers of Jesus are afraid. Oh my goodness, we might discover through archaeology or astronomy something that could potentially contradict this book. Therefore, we cannot be a part of those disciplines. We've got to relegate that to somebody else. I think it's a sad commentary on our day and our time. Let me make two statements. One will be more controversial than the other. I'll let you decide which one that is. <clears throat> I am convinced, I'm convinced that the scripts, scriptures should influence the way that we do science. They should influence what we expect to discover. Statement one. Statement two. 
science should influence the way we read scripture. I'll let you decide which one you think is more debatable. But let me unpack both of these first. Scripture should influence the way that we do science. The scriptures are clear that God speaks through his natural world. Theologians call this general revelation. Would you say that with me? General revelation. Yeah, it's the understanding of God that every person has from first to last because of the nature of the world that we live in. Here's the way that the Apostle Paul said it in his magnus opus of Christianity, his letter to the Romans. He said in Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, here's what he wrote. For what can be known about God is plain to them, to us, to you, to me. Because he's shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they, you, we, me, us, are without excuse. Here's what Paul's saying. When you walk out of your tent when you're camping at night, and you look up, and you see that stripe of the Milky Way galaxy, there's something in your soul that goes, this is bigger than me. It's bigger than what I can see. What Paul would say is, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's God through the beauty, majesty, and awe of his creation, putting his fingerprint on what he's made so that you step back and go, this can't be an accident. His power, his nature, his character is on display. Whether you look through a telescope or a microscope, it's all God's. Yeah, Paul's just riffing. I think he's just going a little bit rabbinic midrash off of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. I mean, you hear what the psalmist is saying? That somehow creation's speaking. It's got a message for us. There is no speech. There is no language. His voice is not heard. It goes out into all the earth, into the ends of the world. Maybe the Magi read... Psalm 19, more literally than we do. Like maybe they really believed that. Yeah, Scripture should influence the way that we do science, but, and equally as true, science should influence the way we read the Scriptures. Now, I know for some of you, you're probably sitting there, and my guess is <clears throat> you did this with your Bible. You went... I'm going to hold it a little closer, Paulson, because I feel like you want to rip it out of my hands, okay? And I, I think I understand what you're thinking, because I've thought it too. Ryan, if science influences the way that we read Scripture, doesn't that water down the Scriptures? Doesn't that take us out of the realm of really studying and figuring out what the Scriptures say and not just pulling in all these worldly disciplines, but, but we want to we protect the integrity of the Scriptures, and I just want to say to you, I'm with you, and I hear you. 
But there are times, and we'll talk about one specific moment in history. There are times where the way that we read the Bible, we figure out afterwards that maybe it wasn't the best reading. And in our cultural moment, in every cultural moment, everybody thinks they're reading it right. But there are times where we found out through 2020 hindsight vision that we weren't. That we weren't. I think a story might be helpful. In um, 1543, there was a Polish astronomer by the name of Nicholas Copernicus who published a book entitled On the Revolutions of the Heavenly Spheres. And in it, he essentially made the proposition through um, a very ancient scientific method. He said, hey, you guys, I think maybe, just maybe, that the earth isn't the center of the universe, and I think it's possible that the sun, or that the, the earth actually revolves around the sun rather than the other way around. Now, Copernicus had a number of friends in the Catholic Church, and they said to him, hey, Nick, interesting idea. What we'd like you to do is keep your mouth shut about that. Thank you very much, okay? And Copernicus said, okay, fair Enough. Well, a number of years later, a scientist by the name of Galileo Galilei, it sort of sounds like Galilei, um, which now we know why he goes by Galileo, began to dig a little bit deeper. And he began to ask more questions. And he had this newly invented tool called the telescope. And he said, hey, you guys. I think Copernicus was right. Now, Galileo Galilei, he, he wasn't as in with the church. And so in 1615, there was this Dominican friar who saw the writings of Galileo and who pulled Galileo in to meet with the church, which was a dangerous thing for a scientist to do back then. And in 1616, they had an inquisition and what they decided in 1616, that Galileo was a suspected heretic, quote, because the science that he was proposing went directly against what the Bible taught. Do you know that the Bible teaches that the sun revolves around the earth? It does. Joshua chapter 10. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said, in the sight of Israel, sun, stand still at Gibeon. And the moon in the valley of Aijalon. And the sun, what? You can only stand still if at some point you were So the church said to Galileo, listen, we know because of the Bible that the sun moves around the earth. It's not the earth that's moving and spinning. It's the sun. Joshua chapter 10 says so. You're a heretic, Galileo. I want you, we need you to keep your mouth shut, which he did until 1632 where there was a transition in the pope. He had a, with a little bit more favor with the new pope, but he was put before an inquisition once again and in 1633 was banished to house arrest for the rest of his life. 
Well, you may have heard since then. <laughs> we made a few discoveries. And it turns out Galileo was right. It's the earth that's moving in orbit around the sun. And so the church had to radically reimagine the way that they read Joshua chapter 10. Now, let me ask you a question. Was that a good thing or a bad thing? Really good thing. Anytime we read the Bible in light of reality, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Even if it doesn't fit, even if it doesn't fit, even if it doesn't fit in the boxes that we have created. See, the truth of the matter, friends, is that that discovery didn't disprove the scriptures. It showed that their interpretation of that passage had been wrong. That's what it showed. Which might cause us to ask, where might our interpretations be wrong? What might we discover in the next decade or three or four century or millennia or two millennia? What, what, might, what might we discover about the way that we read this sacred, beautiful text. See, they're not arguing whether or not the scriptures are authoritative. They're arguing about how do we interpret them best in light of the reality of the world that we lived in, live in. I mean, I think maybe we can best, we can best wrestle with this question through a case study. And let's use a highly debated topic, creation. Creation. It's one of the primary places that many people feel like they either have to choose science or scripture. That they either have to choose the Bible or the Hubble telescope. So I'm going to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 1, which is where a lot of this discussion begins to happen. It's the book of origins. It, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 tell the, the story of creation. But as you're turning there, I want to remind you the Bible is not a scientific textbook, although it does make some scientific claims. And most people invest their time either in science or the scriptures, but very rarely do people do both. I want to be very clear this morning. I am not someone who does both well. I know enough to be dangerous. Take your notes in pencil. You're welcome. But I'm having you turn to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 because before we even get into the sciences behind this, we need to ask, what kind of text are we reading? What's the intention of Genesis 1 and 2? And if you were to go home and you were to read straight through Genesis 1 and 2, which I'd encourage you to do at some point this week, here's what you would find. They are different accounts of creation. And they are accounts that do not always agree with each other. Which might cause us to ask some questions. Like, what's the intention of this? What's the purpose of this in the scripture? And then, 
what are we supposed to do with it? Before we jump into that, and I have you open to Genesis 1 and 2, because I want you just to follow along just to make sure I'm not crazy. You can decide, okay? A few of the differences between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 1 uses the generic term for God when it refers to God, the term Elohim. Genesis chapter 2 refers to the covenantal creator name for God, Yahweh. It's different. Not a big deal, but it's different. The two chapters are different in size and scope. Genesis chapter 1 is sort of a wide angle. It talks about the creation of the cosmos and the universe. It's massive in its grandeur. Genesis chapter 2 focuses primarily on humanity and on earth. Not a big deal. Genesis chapter, or Genesis third, Genesis chapter 1 After every creative act of God, God steps back and says, it's good. Then on day seven, he looks at what he's made, pats himself on the back. You can do that when you're God and says, it's very good. His evaluation of his creation. Genesis chapter two, we don't see anything about it being good. We simply see that it was not good. That's what it says in Genesis chapter two. So his evaluation is different. Genesis 1, Genesis 2. But here's probably the biggest stumbling block for people when they really read through and really study Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The order of the creative account is different. It's different. In Genesis chapter 1, earth is created and it's formless and void. It's it's covered in water. And then you have God who creates land, and then plants, and then animals, and then human beings, male and female. That's Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 2, the creative account begins with the existence of dry land rather than water. Then water is created. So these first two creative acts are reversed. Then... Man is created, specifically, not male and female, but man is created, Adam. Plants are created, then animals are created, and then a woman is created. We tracking? See the differences? You can can just go back and read it sometime this week, figure out if you think I'm crazy or whatever. What you'll find is this, okay? Did the reading for you. Here's the questions I walk away with. Was earth originally covered with water or was it dry? Were plants created first or human beings? See, because in Genesis chapter 2, you have human beings who precede plants. In Genesis chapter 1, you have plants preceding human beings. Which one's right? And then another question I have is, how many humans did God create? I mean, in Genesis chapter 1, we have him creating um, a number of fish and a number of birds and a number of animals. He creates groups of all of these things. And then it says he created human beings and he created them in his image. But what we typically do is we read through to Genesis chapter 2 and we take Adam and Eve and we read them back into Genesis chapter 1. Read through Genesis chapter 1. You know who's absent? Adam and Eve. They're not there. They're not there. 
Okay, so we're studying science and the scriptures, and you might be wondering, which one's right? <laughs> I mean, which one's accurate? I mean, which one describes the events like they actually happened? And typically, we read Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We put our hand in the air. We wave it around like we just don't care. And we go, oh, we have found something that no one else has ever thought of. Like the original author, the narrator of Genesis 1 and 2 didn't know that he or she was putting back-to-back accounts that didn't, quote-unquote, mesh up. Yeah, they were people like you and I. We've certainly advanced a little bit. I think we have different scientific instruments, but they knew what they were writing. They knew what they were doing. I like the way that Tim Keller puts it. He says this. He says, I think Genesis 1 is probably poetry, about the wonder and meaning of God's creation. And Genesis 2 is probably an account more specifically about how it happened. That's one way of resolving it. But you know what we walk away with when we read Genesis chapter 1 and 2? One thing's pretty clear. God created. God created. And even when the early church tried to put into words what they believed about creation. Listen to what they wrote in the Apostles' Creed, written in roughly 180 um, AD. I believe in God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And we want to go, well, how many days did it take? And when did he create? And how did he create? And what was the methodology? And they went, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not the point. The point is, That God Almighty, Yahweh, is the maker of heaven and earth. The creed refuses to answer the questions that we most often ask. It's as though they give us the freedom to decide what and how we believe based on the best sciences in the given time period and the way that we interpret the scriptures best, holding on to the conviction that God is the creator of it all and creating a ton of freedom. To decide exactly how that happened. So there are strong followers of Jesus who strongly disagree about creation. And that's okay. St. Augustine in the 4th century I think it was was four volumes that Augustine wrote on the nature of Genesis, and he wrestled with it. And here's what the conclusion that he came to. In matters that are so obscure and far beyond our vision, we find in the Holy Scripture passages which can be interpreted in very different ways without prejudice to the faith we have received. In such cases, we should not rush headlong and so firmly take our stand on one side that if further progress in the search for truth justly undermines that position, we too fall with it. St. Augustine for the win. I mean, how many of you wish that the church would have read that back in the 16th and 17th century? So I'm going to 
dig my hole a little bit deeper, okay? Um, you're going, I didn't know we could go deeper. Well, we are. Um, <clears throat> and I want to talk about the three most prominently held views of creation amongst those who follow the way of Jesus. And I want to say at the onset, my hope is that you don't know exactly where I stand by the end of this, number one, and that you can see why people would hold such views. Okay? So, first... It's a view called Young Earth Creationism. And this group of people hold very firmly to a literal reading of Genesis chapter 1. And so sometimes their, their, their camp might be called literal six-day creationism. They believe that the world is roughly 6,000 years old, give or take. And there are top-notch scientists and really good theologians that would hold to this view. I'm going to give you resources to go study each of these more at your own leisure. The best one that I know of, I could be wrong, but the best one that I know of is AnswersInGenesis.org. It's led by a man named Ken Ham, who actually built a life-size ark somewhere in Kentucky. So, but he's convinced, and they are convinced, that the scripture, Genesis chapter 1, should be read literally, and that the sciences don't disprove that reading of the scriptures. Second camp. Old Earth creationism. And there are a number of different variances within Old Earth creationism to, to try to wrestle through the scriptures and go, how, how can, in light of the sciences that seem to suggest that the world is, is old, older than 6,000 years, how can we sort of mesh that view with the scriptures? And there's two primary theories that they have. One is the gap theory, and it's in between Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, that there is a gap of time. Hence the term gap theory, okay? The second idea is called the day-age theory. And what they would say is that the days referenced in Genesis chapter 1 aren't literal 24-hour days. They're epochs or long periods, long undetermined periods of time. And what they would say is, we use that word day in that way also. Back in the day of Moses. Back in the day of Abraham Lincoln. And the Hebrew scriptures use that word day in that way at certain times as well. So not literal 24-hour days. They would have no issue with the earth being 4.4 billion years old and no issue with the universe being roughly 13.8 billion years old. One of the benefits of the old earth creation model when it comes to hermeneutics is that we have roughly 20 creation accounts in the scriptures. They don't all line up with young earth creationism. So old earth creationism seems to be able to toy this with this tension of hermeneutics maybe as we look at the scope of scripture in some different ways. Finally, theistic evolution. This view is probably the least popular in the States, but what N.T. Wright pointed out in an article that he wrote about the scriptures in science, he said that isn't the case throughout the globe. That actually his argument from a Brit speaking to people in the U.S. is you've been tainted, we've been tainted by the Scopes Monkey Trials in 1925. And that essentially the Scopes Monkey Trials, which by the way, I didn't know this until I started digging in this week, there's a trial about someone who went in and taught evolution in a science class. I didn't know that this guy was a substitute teacher. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine? Anyway, okay. So, 
<laughs> That's awesome, isn't it? So, all right, so essentially what the Scopes Monkey Trial did is it drew a line in the sand and it said, you either believe in evolution or you believe in the Bible, but you cannot believe in both. Which camp are you in? Which camp are you in? The theistic evolution, that view essentially argues that the best sciences point to evolution and they distinguish between evolutionary philosophy, survival of the fittest, and everything that goes along with that, and evolution as science. But the summary is simply this. God has sovereignly, divinely, and miraculously created the world and has guided the process of evolution over the course of billions of years. Um, you can check out biologos.org. It's run by a man by the name of Francis Collins, who is a brilliant scientist and leader of the Human Genome Project and a very, very strong follower of Jesus. Have I muddied the waters enough for you? So where do I fall? <laughs> um, I'm a happy agnostic when it comes to issues of creation. I think any of them could actually be right. I have a direction that I lean in, but I want to take my lead from St. Augustine. I want to hold it fairly loosely. I'm fascinated by the sciences. I love going to the Museum of Nature and Science with my kids. I'm convinced that God has created and we get to discover his handiwork in more beautiful and awe-filled fashion than no human beings ever have in the history of our globe. And that is a beautiful, really, really good thing. I reject, adamantly reject anything that prevents us from exploring and discovering for fear that we might discover something that goes contrary to the scriptures. This is a united journey of science and scripture, of theology and telescopes that lead us to God. In the same way, did for the Magi. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they what? They worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. I love this picture because it's the combined efforts of the stars and the scriptures that lead these people to Jesus, but they don't end up bowing down to the stars. They end up bowing down to the Messiah. And friends, worship is the end goal of telescopes and theology. That's the goal of it all. So let's be people who let wonder drive us to worship whether it's the very first ever picture of a black hole, or whether it's a picture of the ring nebula, um, leftover particles from a star the size of our sun that exploded and then made something absolutely gorgeous. Or the idea of quantum entanglement. If you have questions about that, ask Aaron. Bring a snack, but ask, ask Aaron. He's like obsessed with this stuff. I mean, it's the idea that, that, that particles start to play off of each other and affect each other even when they are vast differences apart. 
and all of the implications that go along with that. Or the human DNA that we've been able to map and chart and all of its complexity. Or the holographic principle of the universe. Talk to Aaron about that one too. Or the fossil records and what we might one day discover. In fact, this is a depiction of the quote-unquote sea monster that they just discovered fossils from this week in Antarctica, what they think it might have looked like. Let it drive you to worship fossils, ideas, DNA, more ideas, (laughs) stars, and black holes. Friends, as Gerald Manley Hopkins said, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. Let's be people who allow mystery to drive discovery, and then let's be people who allow wonder to cause us to worship, but let's never forget the beautiful, mysterious gift that it is ultimately to be human, where we get to live in this world that we don't understand and never fully will, but we get to be explorers. As followers of Jesus, let's be the best explorers the world has ever seen. Amen. I'd invite you to